Welcome to the latest episode of the Public Health Insight Podcast. My name is Gordon, your host for this episode, along with my co-host, LaShawn. And in this episode, we embark on a journey through the complex intersection of private health insurance and public hospital waiting lists. Contrary to common belief, investigation reveals that the impact of private health insurance on these lists may be more nuanced than anticipated. Shifting gears, we'll delve into the fascinating realm of heart health challenging the assumption that socioeconomic status serves as a uniform predictor. As we navigate the landscape of health disparities, we uncover surprising patterns that may redefine our understanding. Finally, we grapple with the ethical considerations surrounding the integration of artificial intelligence in medicine. Join us as we navigate the balance of keeping a human in the loop, exploring the challenges and implications of AI in the pursuit of a better healthcare system for all. Let's go. In a surprising twist, recent research challenges the widely promoted notion that increased private health insurance uptake can alleviate pressure on public hospitals and reduce surgery waiting times. Despite government incentives and penalties, the study focused on Victoria's hospital data from 2014 to 2018 and it found that if 65,000 more people bought private health insurance, public hospital waiting lists would only shorten by an average of eight hours. These findings raise questions about the effectiveness of the billion-dollar strategies aimed at shifting individuals into the private system. With substantial public spending on private health insurance rebates and services, the study suggests that redirecting funds to public hospitals and primary care might be a more practical and effective strategy, emphasizing the need for equitable access to healthcare. As the Australian government reviews private health insurance, the research calls for reform to optimize the healthcare system's overall efficiency and improve population health. LaShawn, that was a a mouthful there. What's your reaction to that? Yeah, we hear it all the time in the news. Mm. People talk about privatization and all the benefits. And of course, I'm sure there's studies that go both ways and say, hey, this is better than that because X, Y, Z. This one's better than that because X, Y, Z. It's interesting to see that in this specific study, even though, for example, 65,000 people were projected to buy private health insurance, that did not really affect the wait time for surgeries, right? Mm. And For me, it's just important that when these decisions are being made at the government levels to make sure that it's informed and takes into consideration a a myriad of studies and a comprehensive look at the literature rather than relying on, you know, this one article or another article, Hmm. making sure that they really know what they're getting into. Because when we start talking about the B word, billions of dollars, Hmm. That's no joke. That's going to have serious economic implications, right? So we want to make sure that we're going to choose a strategy that works. Right, right. And I was reading this article and I started to think about my favorite quote that I probably say in every episode. Oh, no. (laughs) A problem well-defined is half-solved. Okay, we get it. Right, right. Go ahead, say it. Say it for the people. Yep, a problem well-defined is a problem half-solved. So the reason I bring that up here is because what it's really exploring is not that, oh, is private health 
care better than public health care. It's talking specifically about waitlists. So we've it seems like they've framed out the problem as there is a a waitlist for which people have to stay on there too long before getting the healthcare services that they so badly need. What they've explored specifically is whether diverting people to the private healthcare system is able to alleviate the burden on the waiting list so that people can get seen faster. And what they actually found is that the needle moved very small in a small sense for every 65,000 people that bought into the private health system. So what that shows and what that tells me is that it is not a solution to the waiting list issue in the public health system, right? So then what is the what is the silver bullet? What is the solution? I don't know, but they at least from this research answer the question that private health insurance schemes alone are not sufficient enough to significantly reduce the waiting list in the public hospital system. Yeah, and the article also lists a couple of potential reasons why mm. this has happened and why it didn't reduce wait times more. And they hypothesize that, you know, people may buy healthcare insurance but not use it, you mm, know, preferring right. to actually have free treatment in the public system right. rather than having potential out-of-pocket costs in a private system or the fact that specialists might want to work in private hospitals rather than public in favor of getting, you know, more perks, benefits, monetary value stuff, right? So that's that's also some of the reasons that were listed as to why this potentially happened. Yeah, it's a bit of a ripple effect because you assume wrongly that you're going to hold the public hospital system constant, mm-hmm. create this other system beside it without any repercussions for the public hospital system. But like you mentioned, there can be a bit of a brain drain where specialists leave the, the public to the private. Mm-hmm. And even though you reduce the number of patients in the public system, you also reduce the number of providers that are available in the public system to serve them. Mm-hmm. So the result is a net zero in terms of movement on the waitlist period. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it, can a public hospital system and a public, a private hospital system coexist very well in a society? I don't know. Um, there are some examples, I think, out there where it's been done more successfully. I know Ontario is looking into what that might look like. And that's a privatization is a very bad word in our culture right now that people are very scared of because they think it will leave certain groups behind who are not able to benefit from the luxury of private health, private health insurance. And that's something that's a foreign concept for Canadians for uh, more than a century. So it's something that's very difficult to grapple with. And there's still a lot of research that needs to be done to see how best it can be implemented. I don't think it's an either or LaShawn. Mm-hmm. I think it's, there needs to be real investigation into how it can be done. Yeah. And different metrics other than just looking at wait times. Right. What are these other factors right. that come into play? New research challenges the assumption that improvements in socioeconomic status universally benefits cardiovascular health, revealing racial and ethnic disparities in the United States. While higher socioeconomic status was linked to better heart health across participants, the benefits were more significant for white adults compared to black, Hispanic, and Asian adults. 
For instance, a college education correlated with a 15-point increase in ideal heart health for white adults, whereas Black and Hispanic adults saw around 10-point increases, and Asian adults an 8-point increase. Medicaid versus private healthcare insurance had a more significant impact on white adults, with a 13-point decline compared to a 5-6-point to six point decline for other racial and ethnic groups. The study suggests that factors such as racism, medical mistrust, and unequal access to care may contribute to cardiovascular health inequities, emphasizing the need to consider these complexities when addressing health disparities. Gordon, what do you think about that? Hmm. It is, is this not, is this something new to you? Is this obvious? I mean, it's not entirely surprising. I think the way they designed this study, it makes sense. So one thing that comes to mind initially is around... So we talk about access is sort of this buzzword that I think is more nuanced than people realize. So typically you think of access where do you have transportation to a specific geographical area? Is it affordable to get the transit? That sort of thing. But then what it doesn't really take into account is help-seeking behavior, for example. Mm-hmm. So if you, you could have uh, a black community that's one kilometer away from a hospital and a white community that's one kilometer away from that same hospital and see very stark differences in the utilization of healthcare services, even though they're geographically located the same distance away. And improving access to you, you do expect to see an uptake in the utilization of those services, provided that that hospital was recently moved closer to those two communities. But you're going to see an uneven utilization still, even though both rose up from the baseline, the certain communities will use it more. So it's not surprising. You touched on things like medical mistrust, different cultural factors within a community, like around mental health. Hey, what are you? Tough it out, man. What are you doing? You don't need mm-hmm. to see a doctor for that. And those factors also contribute to stigma, self-stigma, self-efficacy for help-seeking, that sort of thing. So there's a lot of factors at play, and it's not entirely surprising that access alone and things like that do, did not create an equal change in all the groups that were looked at. Yeah, no, that makes sense to me from reading this article and hearing you talk about it. But Let's talk a bit more about that relationship to heart health because I think it mm. extends even beyond heart health to other right. categories of health indicators, right? Mm. So you talked about access a lot. You talked about medical mistrust a lot. You talked about some cultural differences. What about some of those systemic type factors in our society that might be contributing to some of these inequities so yeah i mean in the in the community itself so if you take out healthcare, right different groups have have differential access to education differential access to other opportunities different access to a more healthy built environment for example so if you look at cardiovascular health the inner cities and different the way different communities are designed is it walkable are there bike lanes are there parks for people to get active and even the, the, the cultural elements around food and relationship to food, the types of food that are being eaten. And those things also play a role into why different communities have different health outcomes. So then when you change one of those metrics, like we touched on before, there are other factors that are still embedded in specific cultures that would dull any potential enhancements 
in the mm-hmm. improvements of, of health outcomes. So there's other unique factors that have to be addressed at the community level in addition to any universal approaches that would be required to see all populations improve the same amount. Right, right. And when we're talking specifically about socioeconomic status, we are talking about education, income, employment status, and things like health insurance, right? And that's why the study looked at those different avenues as proxies for changes in heart health and the differences between some of these groups. But did you see any limitations to this study, Gordon? Yeah, there were a few. The the thing that I found interesting, though, before we even get to that, is the article talked about when they looked at college education, Mm -hmm. so different racial groups and ethnicities, and they sort of had education as as a level playing field, like including only people with college level education Mm -hmm. or above, that still didn't equalize the differences that they Mm -hmm. saw, right? So that tells you, of course, that there's other factors at play. But like, you know, you touched on the limitation, LaShawn, you know, they didn't really touch on like some of its self-report, obviously self-reported data. And they also, one of the important things in there is that the accumulation of wealth too. So that even within Mm. a certain population, so you might have systemically oppressed communities, again, not all a monolithic group. So within that group, some families start off further ahead than others and there's, there was no way from the study, from us reading the study, they didn't, they weren't able to capture those nuances to tease those things. Yeah, out. as well as taking into account country of birth and immigration status, right? Those would be important mm, things to also important. take yeah. into consideration. AI, or artificial intelligence, celebrated for its potential to enhance diagnostics and treatment, now faces a critical challenge. An international task force, including a University of Rochester Medical Center, bioethicist, warns that if not carefully designed, tested, and used, AI medical devices could harm patients and exacerbate health inequities. The task force, part of the Society for Nuclear Medicine and Medical Imaging, emphasizes transparency regarding AI accuracy and limitations. They call for ensuring universal access to AI medical devices, irrespective of race, ethnicity, gender, or wealth. The role of healthcare providers is pivotal, urging them not to overly rely on AI predictions and to maintain a human-centric approach in decision-making. Developers are urged to be transparent and calibrate AI models for diverse populations to avoid exacerbating health disparities. The urgency lies in establishing a robust ethical and regulatory framework as AI in medicine rapidly advances. Ooh. So I thought, LaShawn, AI was all about chat GPT and making emails easier to write and papers easier to write and all that stuff. But now we're talking about AI in medicine? We're talking about practice. What's going on here? Yeah. I mean, it's quite obvious now that we've seen a boom in artificial intelligence technologies that's at the hands of everyday people like myself. Mm. And with that, we've seen this boom where across Mm. disciplines and application areas, whether it's medicine, public health, engineering, construction, all these different places have this almost a 
a responsibility to uptake some of this and use it ethically because people are using it. We know that, but how do we make sure that we're having this robust ethical and regulatory framework to use as we're advancing these technologies, especially in the context of health, right? So when I think of this, you know, I see this huge potential benefit for a bunch of different populations, right? And improving effectiveness, efficiency, I see all those things. However, it's really important that when we're talking about these different artificial intelligence tools, that we're building them appropriately. And what I mean by that is, are we considering different groups of people? Are we considering Black folk, Asian folks, brown folk, like all ethnic, religious, all these different diversity indicators that we have, are we ensuring that these tools are built upon representation in all these diverse groups, right? Because if we don't, we run this huge risk of not being accurate when we're diagnosing people. If we're using AI and getting source data from just white people, for example, and we apply this tool to the black population, is that going to be accurate? Are they able to, if we're looking at skin cancer diagnoses, or is it going to be able to differentiate the differences in a very accurate way? Or is there going to be misrepresentation? And that's why this article is also saying there has to be some element of human-centric decision-making involved as well, because this tool at its infant stage can only do so much. Hmm. Hmm. So here's the thing. Is it... AI we should be worried about the or or the well, the well you say the people but also AI is being trained by data that has already been collected mm-hmm. and the data that's already been collected is biased in many ways like you mm-hmm. said in terms of healthcare data or disease based data or treatment and prognosis based data mm-hmm. is primarily skewed in the direction of white populations and other marginalized populations are traditionally underrepresented mm-hmm. So if that gets fed into the AI and the provider who's interpreting the information that comes out doesn't have that context, I think what's what this is talking about is not to rely exclusively on mm-hmm. AI, at least until we can make sure we get everything right and understand that AI will is molded by what's fed into it. And it doesn't have this inherent ethics built into it where it can say, Hey, my data set's only 100% white people, so don't use it on to make judgments on people who are black. That's something that the provider themselves would have to approach that interaction with their patient, knowing that context. So I think that's, I just wanted to make that distinction that people are, oh, AI is bad, AI is bad. It's like, actually, the stuff that we're putting into AI is mm-hmm. bad. And then if we rely on what comes out of yeah. that, then that makes things even yeah. worse. So we need to do a better job of making sure our data sets are more representative in the first place so that AI can produce outputs that are more representative of the real world situation in a healthcare setting. Yeah, and I think it's important as a lot of these tools are in its infant stages that we're making sure that this becomes a priority because mm. it's hard. It's going to be harder to make these type of changes in understanding once these tools are fully utilized out in the public mm. versus now when we have this understanding, build a ethical framework around this, a regulatory framework around this, where we're able to take caution and s- supply that context to people, right? Mm. Yeah. 
So you know what the the thing is is you remember during COVID when Zoom started doing that virtual background oh, stuff, that green that. screen yeah, stuff. What was that about? And then and then like people who are darkest skin right. colored were kind of faded yeah, yeah, out. Yeah. They didn't go into that thinking, you know, it would be cool if we did something where black people don't show up on the yeah. screen and only white people show up on yeah. the screen. It just that the way the lighting and all the color stuff and was designed, it allowed for white people to stand out against that virtual background versus people who are yeah. darker skin. I don't believe that was intentional. So AI, you're looking at really the yeah. same thing. The bias that we're putting in is not necessarily intentional, but those who are building the AI tools should be aware of those biases and make sure that's incorporated in some way in the analysis. And then those who are interpreting the analysis on the other end should be aware that those biases existed in the first place. But here's the thing. In the mm -hmm. ideal world, that would be nice. But we know yes. that there's almost this competition to see who could develop the best AI tools and get mm -hmm. it out to market as soon as possible. So mm -hmm. in that kind of challenge, how are we going to make sure we're making the ethical decision to make sure that we do our due diligence? Yeah, and I think that's why this focus. So this focused a lot on the healthcare provider, mm -hmm. this particular piece. And like, let's say, let's put it this way. If you're Gordon and LaShawn's public hospital, if we're doing things the ethical way, we're probably, we probably should do our research and procure a specific AI technology in which we have some guarantees that they did all this stuff before. Mm -hmm. So as much as there's hundreds out there and there might be 99 others that were in some kind of speed race to do things quickly rather than in the right way, it's our responsibility to make sure we choose the right mm -hmm. one. And then, so I think that can be mitigated in that sense. But then the longer they take, the more, the further behind they get, the less funding they might get if they're not advanced. So it's a whole cycle where the ones that do things the right way may actually get further and further behind and not able to survive. Mm -hmm. And then the ones that are going very quickly without the ethics built into it are the ones that will be more successful and they will perhaps be the only options available at the time when healthcare providers are ready to implement this. So it's really hard to know how this will shake up, but at the very least, be aware of the limitations of AI and that AI will spit out whatever bias data that you input it into it without context. In this episode, we spoke about a lot of cool things, actually. You know, we talked about in the beginning that you know, private health insurance. In Ontario, there's a lot of discourse about will we go private? Will we not go private? And we talked about an article that forewarns that private health insurance is not necessarily a catch-all solution to the issues being faced in the public hospital system, in particular wait times. And then we talked about the assumption that socioeconomic status serves as a uniform predictor for all ethnicity and populations. This article actually broke down why that's actually not the case. And LaShawn and I talked about some of the reasons why different groups are disproportionately impacted by the external environment and some groups are disproportionately positively impacted by changes in the external environment. And then we finished off around the coolest topic ever nowadays with artificial intelligence around the importance of building ethics into these AI tools and ensure that our healthcare providers are best equipped to serve patients who represent the diversity of the communities in which they serve. This was Gordon and LaShawn. 
Signing Peace. off. Peace. Thank you for listening to the Public Health Insight Podcast, your go-to space for informative conversations, inspiring community action. If you enjoy our podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. See you in the next one.